0: My first patrol I took on my left seat, right seat, with um, the battalion that was there before, we had a far ambush as I was getting oriented to the, uh, the area of operation from basically the city edge of Fallujah. And it sort of set the tone for the entire deployment. And simultaneously, I start doing my sweeps, and it just happened. One of my lance corporals right right next to me, And he's like, sir, look at this. And it's halfway buried, candy cane-striped wire that we're standing right on top. I'm like, get away now. Right, you know, because we're basically standing, we know we're standing on an IED.
1: Hey, welcome back to The Spear, a podcast by the Modern War Institute at West Point. I'm John Ambo, editorial director at MWI and The Spear is our platform to explore the combat experience. This episode is another first for The Spear, our first Marine guest. Tim Straving is a former Marine Corps infantry officer, and joined me recently to share a story from his 2004 deployment to Anbar province in western Iraq. He deployed to Iraq just two months after taking over his platoon, and found himself in a particularly restive area of what was at the time a notoriously restive province with a ton of insurgent activity. As a platoon commander, he regularly planned and led 48-hour patrols. Many of those patrols were busy, but one in particular stands out, and you're about to hear him tell the story. Before that, though, just a couple quick notes. First, thanks for listening to The Spear. The response we've received since we launched it has been absolutely incredible. We want to continue to reach even more new listeners, and you can help. If you're enjoying the podcast, we would love it if you could take just a few seconds and give it a rating or leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And second, as always, what you're about to hear are the views of the participants and don't represent the position of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. All right, I hope you enjoy our first story from the U.S. Marine Corps.
2: Tim, thanks very much for making some time for uh, for this episode of the Spear. This is a very special episode. It's actually our first um, first Marine guest. Right. I'm um, humbled
0: uh, that you'd have a Marine on here. So. It is. We yeah. and
2: you know in our in our never ending quest to become more joint. Uh, we're, we're happy to have you here. So you're going to share a story uh, today from 2004. And I guess before we kind of get into it, I wonder if you can just talk a little bit about when it was, where you were, um, kind of provide some context.
0: Absolutely. So I was a, a platoon commander, uh, a Marine uh, battalion I was a part of. It was 3rd Battalion, 1st Marines, uh, based out of Camp Pendleton, California. And I had got to my unit two months before we deployed straight out of the infantry officer course um, in Quantico, Virginia, basically met my platoon, did two training missions um, with them, and then deployed to uh, Ambar province of Iraq, so west of Baghdad, Uh, and at that point, uh, it was June of 2004, so um, where we were, our area of operation for my battalion, and my company specifically, was just east of Fallujah uh so kind of between baghdad and fallujah about how far from fallujah uh the edge of rao would would have been just like a mile uh from fallujah but what happened in april of 2004 big offensive um in fallujah and at the to basically get the stalemate accomplished the iraqi government sort of came in and said hey we're gonna lose all of Anbar province we're gonna lose all the sunnis if if basically the marines continue the urban battle in fallujah so so the marines pulled out and the deal was that they were going to give it back to this, kind of the tribal elders to the city and so the city was essentially a safe haven for insurgents and we knew it had to be dealt with but there was politics in iraq there was politics in the united states there was an election year there's a lot going on around it and so when we deployed in that place we knew it was almost like we were waiting for the word go to kind of finish that mission in Fallujah because we knew we couldn't let Fallujah stay essentially under insurgent control. So we were skirmishing. You know, my first patrol I took on my left seat, right seat with um, the battalion that was there before, we had a far ambush as I was getting oriented to the, uh, the area of operation from basically the city edge of Fallujah. And it sort of set the tone for the entire deployment because you almost didn't do a patrol where you didn't either experience an IED, or it was it was very, very active in terms of the insurgency probing, car bombs, you know, kind of the the whole gamut. Um, it was a very active time uh, that summer.
2: So you got into country after Fallujah 1. Um, yes. You know, you didn't have, you, you couldn't predict the future, but there was a sense that Fallujah 2 was going to be coming. Yeah. Um, but in absolutely. the meantime, there's still a lot going on in these areas, kind of surrounding Fallujah, mm-hmm. where you're at. So, what's a, what does a typical day look like?
0: So, a typical day um, when we first got there was a series of patrols from my. Co- it was a company sized firm base that we had a school building uh, that we operated out from, and you know, it's a combination of interacting with the local populace meeting with different officials, checking in with with the Iraqi police department at that time, Um, and then essentially seeing if there's uh, any weapons caches. We do um, IED sweeps on on various roads in the AO, that kind of thing. It's it's June in Iraq, so we're adjusting to 105, 107 (laughs) degree temps and just kind of getting our feet under us. And it quickly, you know, within... Three weeks of being on the ground, uh, my platoon suffered a really nasty IED attack in vehicles uh, that badly uh, injured my strongest squad leader, my third squad leader, uh, and, and two other Marines. And then about a week and a half after that, there was a massive uh, car bomb VBID in the sort of marketplace. So, it, you know, the local population certainly did not have any control what was going on with the insurgency uh, and coming in. And, you know, we're trying to build those alliances, but it was hard. So we sh- really shifted after about a month being on the ground and feeling like we were just taking shot after shot to a much more agile and mobile kind of mode of, of operating. So what we got to do as a platoon commander was 48-hour Duration patrols wow. where I could, in consultation with company commander, detail out what I was going to do for 48 hours out of five vehicles and basically not even come back. We, we, we ran out of battalion, which was in a, you know, a little bit further south. And so much less predictable to the enemy in terms of where we were going to be, when, and that kind of thing. And as a platoon commander, it was like... You know is the best because I didn't have to constantly check in uh, with higher command and I had more or less free autonomy to, to run my platoon It was great
2: so you know after after we talk about um, the story you're gonna share I want I, I do want to come back to that autonomy and you know the freedom that that gives but also as a new lieutenant sure. um, kind of you know that's a little bit scary sometimes so <laughs> uh, we'll come back to that but um, you said you're moving around a lot. You're very mobile. So, presumably, you're rolling around in Humvees. Yep. Um, from the initial invasion, when we went in, and mainly soft skin Humvees, you saw this yes. sort of. Um, Evolution until you know my first deployment was in two thousand eight, and I mean everything was up armored, heavily yeah. up armored. What were the what were the vehicles like that you were rolling? Uh, that's, a, that's
0: a great question. Uh, it always reminds me of when Secretary Rumsfeld had that interaction. I think it was down in Kuwait or something, and you know uh, a young soldier raised his hands and you know Mr. Secretary, what are you going to do about uh, all yeah. these issues with not having enough armor and protection against the ieds he just comes back and you know some sometimes you got to fight with with the army that you're given not the one that you want uh and we were fighting with the vehicles that we were given not the ones we wanted so these were formerly just thin-skinned humvees but we knew enough about the ied threat that we they had like kind of the saloon add-on doors in the front and then it was just kind of like an armor box kind of around the back but the thing is no Marine wants to ride around in an armor box. All my Marines are pulling security out of it. So, whenever we had an IED attack, shrapnel, you know, you're better off higher up um, in terms of how a blast goes. But certainly, those saloon doors, like the squad leader who, who I was describing got injured, he was sitting in the A driver's seat, the passenger seat of a Humvee with a saloon door. And if he would have had an enclosed armor door, you know, he doesn't get shrapnel inside of his head from, from an IED. So, you know, looking back on it, it definitely is frustrating, yeah at the time you know you've got your mission and you just you're working as hard as you can to accomplish that mission
2: well, wow. yeah, so the story you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna kind of tell us is was this on one of these forty eight hour Exactly. Clan patrols? Yeah. Okay, yeah. so so can you walk us through that? What happened?
0: So we had kicked off, you know, like 06 that morning, uh, had had this big plan for the day of we were going to go meet a couple sort of village officials and do kind of just some um, knock and talk with, with locals and that mm-hmm. type of thing. And so we're going through this town of Karma, and it was pretty routine where if you come to a bridge or a place where you thought an IED might be, uh, it was much better to dismount to basically check out that scene. And so we had done that fairly routinely on the small bridge leading into the southern part of the town. So what
2: does that mean when you dismount? How many people do you have in a Humvee? How many get off? Sure.
0: Um, So we would have kind of two fire teams Kind of per Humvee, probably. So you even squads aren't completely together. They're kind of in two vehicles, that type of thing. We would usually dismount two fire teams if we were going to sweep something. And it would usually come from the lead vehicles. And then we'd kind of rotate over the course of the day because you'll really, you'll smoke your Marines if it's the same ones having to get out. Right. Again, it's probably at this point, you know, 8 a.m., 9 a.m., it's already 95 degrees. And we're going to go for 48 hours. So, so you got to pace yourself. So they dismount and do this sweep. And sure enough, they found you know, sort of buried wires, which is a telltale sign that there's something going on here. And I think they also had you know off-the-shelf metal detectors you know, you're asking about sort oh, of the wow. humvees we had uh, we didn't at that time didn't really anticipate hey what gear do we need to effectively find find IEDs and we were usually just using these plastic crappy you know beach combing
2: <laughs> where'd they come from do you know
0: uh, I'm not sure where exactly they they came from but they were literally plastic and we broke them they were not military grade right <laughs> and so it, th- in this case it wasn't the metal detector it was just visual seeing these these wires and So we quickly went into our SOP for that, formed a cordon around it, and then had to wait probably an hour and a half before the EOD squad that's servicing the entire couple battalions' AOs to go defuse these things, which actually the Marines kind of like because it was like, okay, (laughs) now you get a little bit of a break because you get to sort of wait for EOD to come out and that kind of thing. So they send their robot. The robot does its video thing. Yes, confirms it. And then they actually use the robot to drop on uh, some c 4 blow it in place. And then do the sort of site analysis, which is always interesting to see. Okay, what kind of round? You know, and a lot of times it was either daisy chain, so you could have multiple sites, or there'd be multiple rounds sort of tied together in, in one spot. That one, if my memory serves me, was just in one spot, but it had two rounds. So it wasn't a big one. I think it was probably, you know, maybe one one five five 155 round and, and maybe like an 80 millimeter mortar that they had sort of tied into the ID. But so it's always a good when you start a 48 hour patrol with a win like that. So we, we had some confidence going into it, uh, went through kind of rest of the day and as it was starting to get dusk moved to kind of a position in the northern part of the the area of operation that we were in and i had scheduled a new ahead of time from the air officer of our battalion that we we're gonna have two uh marine f-18s on on station essentially and our, our battalion would control them and then push them out to companies and, and my company was going to put push it to me for about a half hour so not a lot of time and I felt pretty comfortable just based on the sort of the marine training I'd had talking to pilots and, and that kind of thing they're you know much less formal than grunt speak certainly and have their own lingo and I saw it as an opportunity to have my squad leaders interact directly with these pilots and control them uh, from our radio our platoon radios and walk them through areas that uh, were of interest for them to see within our uh, area of operation. So they did that. Each squad leader got about 10 minutes talking to the pilots, you know, scanning various routes, uh, places where, where they think they might find sp- suspicious activity, those type of things. And so that kind of ends fairly uneventfully and. I'm in the process of moving to the next piece of this sort of you know 48-hour duration patrol mission, which was to take a, a four-man team and embed them for the rest of the night on a, a site that had overwatch of, of a place where a couple IEDs had been in emplaced uh, previously to try to catch uh, IED emplacers in, in the act. So I get my, my platoon up, five vehicles, we're getting ready to move out. Um, my radio operator at the time uh, says to me, Sir, do you mind if I uh, stay on the frequency of the pilots? Uh, because I'm just sort of interested to hear, you know, what what else they're going to be looking at, that kind of thing. Will you monitor the the company net? Like, no big deal, easy. Uh, he, he can do that. I'll do that in the car, in the vehicle, and uh, so that's what we do. And we get about five minutes into the movement, uh, and I hear my radio operator's like, "Sir, hey, you got to flip to the air frequency. The pilots are seeing some really interesting things." I'm like, oh, "Okay." Well, let's check it out. So I start listening, and it becomes clear, as the pilots are describing, what they see is, you know, they're on thermals at this point. It's dark. And in their thermal imaging, they're seeing kind of these two or three suspicious actors on the side of a road, in the main road in Rio. Go out to the road when there's no cars coming. Looks like they're digging or messing with the side of the road. And as soon as like headlights come, then they run off, kind of down into the ditch. And, th- and they saw it happen a couple of times. And so my interest is peaked at this point.
2: So when you're listening in on 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 the pilots, who are they? Are they are you just listening to a conversation between the two of them? Is they're watching this? Are they reporting it back to somebody?
0: They're reporting. They're on at that point with our battalion air officer. Okay. So it's at the battalion level. Uh-huh. And I'm because I had the frequencies from controlling them. We're basically flies on the wall at this point of what's kind of developing. I will say, and this is no offense to pilots, I had been on a QRF mission, a quick reaction force mission out of my company's headquarters about a week before where pilots were convinced they saw ammunition getting passed from one trunk to another in our like village kind of square area and I dispatched. I went out there with the squad as fast as we possibly could, you know, thinking we're, we're going to catch it in the, in the middle of it. And they're transferring ice (laughs) from from one vehicle and that, you know, the ice was definitely, you know, I guess it was sort of weapon shape a little bit, (laughs) but it it was popping on their thermals. I kind of had that in the back of my mind. Like, you know, this, this could be something, but it also could be nothing in, in trying to sort of balance between those a little bit Um, because they're at what, I don't know, maybe 10,000 feet and they're just seeing what they're seeing on their thermals. But it was intriguing enough to me that I quickly plotted the point where it was, saw that I could get there probably within 10 minutes. And now I'm listening on the battalion frequency, them talking to my company to figure out they're going to send a QRF from battalion or they can send a, you know, is my company going to dispatch it. And then I just went straight to my company commander and said, you know, sir, I'm about 10 minutes out i can be on that spot and i'll develop it and so that's my company commander agreed to it and i at that point just issued basically a a fragmentary order a frago over to my squad leaders and said hey here because they don't know they're in we're in five different vehicles right they think they're going to insert a a four-man team missions completely changed at this point and it potentially could be a a complicated situation we're stepping in. So this is
2: before the four-man team gets in place? Yes. Yeah. Okay, so you just say, okay, forget that. We're going to go check this other... I, I say, hey,
0: out. we've got new information. Aircraft are seeing the suspicious activity. We can get there sooner than anyone else. Uh, we're going to... We'll, we'll still implant that team. Uh, we'll place that team when the time comes. But right now, we're going to focus on seeing, you know, a developing situation that, that could be IED in placement.
2: So is this then you've plotted the grid. Um, you see it's, you know, can't be more than a couple kilometers away. Um, you figure out how to get there and then is it just kind of this, Hey, everybody follow me and, and you just head straight to the X or, or what do you do?
0: Right? Exactly. So I get situational awareness for my squad leaders. So they know basically what I know of, of what's happening on what the pilots are seeing. And at that point I kind of have a decision to inform them what we're going to, what our kind of plan is to go <laughs> yeah. in there. And, the way I saw it, I had two basic options. Option number one was probably to stop maybe 400 meters before we get to the grid where the pilots are seeing it. And the, Again, I don't think the pilots are completely pinpointed on this either. Um, so that's that's option one, and then be able to develop the situation from there. And option two would be just go land directly on top of that grid and figure it out when we get on the ground. And at that point, you know, and this is sort of I think comes in your marine training, and you know, suffering a few IED attacks already. I'm like, I'm going straight to that spot, and we're gonna catch these uh, individuals in in the act if we can. So I I relay that to my squad there, say, as soon as we halt, know that you're in a, in a risk, a high risk area. We need to do five and twenty five meter checks. So that was whenever we got out of vehicles and dismounted on vehicles. You always before you do anything else, you know, have security out, but then look around five meter radius within your vehicle and then do one more sweep 25 meters out. So that was pretty standard for the platoon just to make sure we're we were on safe ground where whenever we would get out of the vehicles. And so I issue that squad leaders kind of have that, you know, and, and I'm in the very lead vehicle. My platoon sergeant's is my last vehicle. And so he kind of has control. I tell him, hey, you take control of, of third squad uh, to be able to, to uh, develop the situation. I'm going to have the other two squads kind of under my control, and, and you know, we'll, we'll take it from there. So, and this is all happening real time. <laughs> you know, By the time everyone has an idea of kind of what's going on, we're only a minute or two out. Okay. So we go right to the spot. I, I dismount from my vehicle. We're on a, we're on MVGs start. It's like complete pitch dark at this point. So you're
2: driving blackout.
0: Driving blackout. Yeah. So they're not. Yep. So these guys just that IR are, lights. Right? Are, yep. These yep. guys
2: that are jumping into the ditch and hiding when they see headlights aren't going to see any headlights coming.
0: Nope. Okay. Nope. They won't see headlights. I mean, they would probably you know quickly see it's a number of vehicles sure. right uh, once we were close. But yeah, in terms of that type of scenario, to have five vehicles and have an element of surprise. Mm-hmm. We, and that's probably, you know, that was the biggest thing that drove the decision to go right to that spot because we wanted to maintain as much as possible the element of surprise. So we kind of have that. And as soon as I hop out of the vehicle, I see a, a runner, a guy's sprinting across this field. Uh, and I send the first fire team. I was like, go after him, chase him as fast as you can. Uh, all my other Marines are dismounting that those guys are dispatched trying to find out why is that individual running away from us so fast. So already my spidey sense is up. like it is, it wasn't like it was a farmer because this a thing. It's an agricultural area. Right. Yeah. And because it's so hot during the day, you have situations where people are doing farming or, you know, working. So you, you really have to be careful on rules of engagement right. type of things on this. And so at that point, but it is when he starts running the other way, if, if he, if it was a normal Iraqi farmer in that case, they'll come up, you know, they know, yep. they'll try to shine a light. Like they don't want to get shot. Right. Like, and we don't want to shoot an innocent. Um, so you send a
2: fire team mounted on.
1: Nope. Oh, really? They are they just take off running, take off
0: run after this guy. And simultaneously I start doing my sweeps and it just happened. One of my Lance corporals right, right next to me. And he's like, sir, look at this. And it's halfway buried, candy cane, striped wire that we're standing right on top. I'm like, get away now. Right. You know, because we're basically we know we're standing on an IED uh, at that point. Very telltale sign. And it was sort of fresh. And so I'm trying to scramble to get so we're not blown up right there. Right. And so now I know I've got a real situation. A guy's running away, uh, trying to catch him. Uh, The pilots are talking to my radio operator this whole time. And I I, I should just a little segment on my radio operator. 20-year-old Lance Corporal, um, who was from South Central L.A., first-generation immigrant And almost didn't even go on the deployment with us because I get to my platoon and my company commander says, hey, just, you know, uh, this Marine popped positive in the last drug test. You know, that's a pretty um, sure way for a quick exit from the Marine Corps. Mm -hmm. Uh, We've decided that we can't, you know, we need every single Marine to come with us on this deployment. So we're going to keep him and he's going to be in your platoon and you have to work with him (laughs) and at that point his attitude was pretty sour uh sour and you know he he was not in a good place but on the training missions that i had had with my platoon i sort of tested him out as my radio operator um because he had uh, a little bit of experience doing that had been trained on it knew how to load all the frequencies and uh, he was also kind of you know one of these guys that had you know just enough edge to like be he wasn't um sheepish or or afraid to sort of be my voice in the radio. And I always appreciated that with my company commander because my company commander is a really forceful guy. And I knew that like he was doing a good job when the company commander was like, give me Raider one actual (laughs) because I knew that my radio operator had got it under his skin. Um, so the radio operator, uh, is still listening at this point to the pilots and Uh, He says, hey, the pilot still sees two individuals off the side of the road, about 20, 30 yards from you guys. And and I'm like, okay, uh, pull back. I had to basically clear the space where I was going to sweep down my third squad with my platoon sergeant. So I I quickly go over to my platoon sergeant and say, hey, grab third squad. I want you to sweep from north to south uh, along the side of the road. Um, If if you're going to engage... You got to shoot south, don't shoot at a hall to the east where we were basically, you know, potentially I do not want to have a friendly fire incident in the dark in a very developing situation. And so all of this is kind of happening at once, right? I've got a fire team (laughs) chasing somebody. We're trying to get back from on top of what we believe is an IED. And the pilots are saying, hey, we've we've got two individuals still there. And so this all probably unfolds over maybe a a two to three minute short period of time. And all of a sudden, weapons open up, and what had happened was the two individuals who were replacing the ID. It looked like it was a three-man team. They they popped up and were holding uh, things in their hands, and that was enough for uh, my platoon sergeant to to say to to engage at that point. Turns out it was a shovel and a pickaxe. I think they knew at that point that the game was up mm-hmm. and they were probably just going to try to like, you know, whatever was coming towards them, that's all they had. Right. Uh, Cause they didn't want to get caught with weapons on them, that kind of thing. But from t- probably when they engaged their my Marines were maybe 20, 30 yards away on MVGs. They made the right decision in my mind mm-hmm. um, because if they didn't act quickly and those were weapons that they, they could have, they were at, at yeah. real risk. Um, and so, yeah, the, shot both of those individuals. And this is where it gets a little complex because now we have two enemy combatants who are, you know, uh, shot and fairly close to where they implanted the IED. And we don't know what state all of that is in. And so we basically have to kind of pull them back out of the the radius. But we, we also... Are in a situation where we need to get those ieds the ied cleared and it was clear that both both of the enemy were, were killed on the site uh so it wasn't like we needed to rush them for medical care or anything like that it was it, that was clear and so then we had to basically call back to hire and say here's the situation i have two dead enemy K- kia and i have a partially in place we don't know if it's stable or not ied um situation so then we have to stay on that spot for another hour, hour and a half for the explosive mm. ordinance disposal EOD wow. to, to come out again. And it turns out it was the same EOD team that had come in the morning. <laughs> and it was funny because the team lead was like, who are you guys? <laughs> like I was like, we're just having a really good day. <laughs> uh, and it turns out that they must have been working on that emplacement for a while because it was one of those daisy chains where they had three separate wow. uh, spots. that was daisy. And so they were they were probably... 15 20 minutes away from being complete wow. and if we you know timing would have been different that could have been blowing on us that night mm-hmm. potentially um or uh, on a patrol the next day kind of thing but it, it, in the end you know we had plenty of really bad days uh over the course of my seven month deployment um and we ended up going into Fallujah which was uh very intense uh, as a platoon commander and To be in that urban fight but that sort of sequence of that day was like the best day we had on the entire deployment operationally because just we'd been in country enough we were hitting on all cylinders and sometimes you know by the way that events develop sometimes really positive good things can happen
2: i think um you called it a good day a couple times you said the in the morning when you when you found the id you called that a win um it's interesting to me that you know, I can see how this, this engagement with the guys in place in the IEDs, like this is what Marines are trained to do, right? Um, at a tactical level. Yes. Um, earlier in the morning, you found an IED and you, you found it, detected it, called out EOD, handled it well. Um, at that point you're sort of, you're not fighting enemy forces directly. Mm. You're fighting weapons, you're fighting bombs, you're fighting IEDs. Um, is that, is that tough? That is it, is that, I mean, does it does it have any impact on sort of morale that, you know, you've got a highly trained platoon of U.S. Marines that are capable of engaging any enemy force they're going to meet on the battlefield, and yet you find yourself sometimes just having to drive really slowly, dismount guys to go with Absolutely. these metal detectors, Absolutely. and yeah, that's des- definitely a win, but is it, is it, does it impact morale? Does it does yep. it make it harder to not want, or does it make guys want to just get out and get in a fight?
0: Absolutely. I mean, it's a real leadership challenge, right? So you've got to keep your Marines motivated to do what's largely kind of defensive and preventative actions. And, you know, as I mentioned before, we'd had already two nasty attacks in our first month on the ground. Mm -hmm. And so my Marines were really wanting to be aggressive and get at an enemy who was faceless, who blended into the local population and those type of things. And so that was a case where they actually were able to exercise their weapon systems. And, and that aspect of it, you know, we never take joy in taking life, but there was um, a degree of professional kind of satisfaction in doing our jobs well. If, if we wouldn't have been able to do that marines probably would have been injured or killed by the ieds that were there and we and we took some clear combatants off from the battlefield that day so there was a lot of kind of satisfaction in that but over the you know your question in terms of operating in that kind of environment where you know so much of what you're doing is just trying to prevent or or try to get the local populace to give you information that type of thing is very challenging to keep you know morale up and for you to give good guidance and, and put the right constraints on your Marines. Yeah, absolutely.
2: The, uh, you called that a leadership challenge. Another one that I think, um, you, you seem to have navigated quite well was with your radio operator. And I, I, I think that as a junior leader, that is one of the most rewarding things that you can do is take somebody that people say, uh, you know, he he or she's never going to amount to, you know, um, and figure out a way, a place where they can contribute and and perform at the at the standard that you need them to. Um, I wonder if there was, if if you felt that sort of, um, if it felt rewarding to be able to have done this with this marine.
0: Absolutely, it, and I'm still in touch with him to this day. Um, and at the end of the deployment, I wrote up what he did for that, and he 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 got a navy achievement medal with a v which yeah. for the marine corps uh and a lance corporal to have an individual award for valor yeah. was a pretty special thing so it was really neat to be able to kind of honor uh his his service and and really it, he didn't have to do any of that and I wouldn't have had nearly the situational awareness I had going in like and maybe our, my platoon wouldn't have even gotten the mission like you mm-hmm. you could do a scenario where the battalion's too slow and And it's a much uh, worse situation when they get there a half hour later than than just the way how events allowed us to be there so quickly when when it was first spotted. So, yeah, yeah, that Marine, uh, yeah, he had a complicated, you know, he made some bad decisions, right? but it didn't define him as a person and we were able to build kind of a a really good working relationship and rapport. I mean, he was my radio operator on my shoulder for three weeks of urban fighting in Fallujah. Like I've got a bond with, with that Marine probably, you know, in some ways even closer than my platoon sergeant in some ways. Yeah. That's a,
2: that's, I think that's a really cool part of this, the story. Um, so this, this happened how long into your deployment?
0: We had been there just over two months at that
2: point. And, and before the deployment, how long had you had the platoon
0: under two months? okay
2: so this is pretty early in your really career early. as a military leader um, and you talked about that autonomy that mm-hmm. when you're you know you're out at a uh, a company firm base um, you're doing these 48 48 hour patrols that you're largely planning yourself there's a huge degree of autonomy there and you, which you said you know you really liked and, and that's a that's a unique opportunity absolutely um, I would imagine it also. I mean you know there's the buck stops here really at that Mm -hmm. point like as a lieutenant as the platoon commander um was it was it frightening in any way were you nervous were you anxious at all
0: i think when i first got into country you have a fair amount of anxiety as a new platoon commander just because it's a foreign it's everything's foreign at that point you have um, for me, not deeply established relationships with squad leaders. And, and squad leaders were a real challenge for me. I mentioned one; my strongest one got injured within two weeks of being on the ground. Um, two weeks later, I had to fire another one for incompetence and replace him with a sergeant with a corporal to lead that squad. Wow. Um, and then over the course of the deployment, I, lo- I had to rotate out two other squad leaders. <laughs> so that was a you know, real leadership challenge uh, of trying to have the right, sort of people in place. Uh, thankfully my platoon sergeant was great and he was a real sort of place for stability and, and helping kind of lead the platoon. But you know, yeah, it's, it's, it's a real challenge to step into that environment. It, it probably took at least a month on the ground before you really feel like you're starting to be effective and you're not operating from a place of just trying to figure it out. And, and this is probably the first experience I had as, as a platoon commander where, things really came together the combination of kind of my training my marines performing really well like you know if i don't have a a a squad leader and a platoon sergeant who i trust to kind of sweep and make sure they're going to and know that they can engage their weapon systems and i have marines you know you wouldn't do that on a live fire range because i just said hey don't don't shoot your weapons to the east right like that's a pretty and it's dark um so it's one of these cases where the kind of training and um, teamwork really came through in a meaningful way. But, you know, I think being in country, you're never, you're never completely comfortable. You're, there's always going to be anxiety and fear is a real thing, right? I mean, you try not to operate from a place of fear, but you also have to not be wanton in terms of decisions you're making because they have the impact of the lives of your Marines at stake. And, Frankly, I felt a a deep amount of responsibility for innocent Iraqi civilians who were caught in the crossfire of a really nasty conflict and felt responsibility to them Mm -hmm. in ensuring that insurgents weren't going to damage or or physically harm them and that my Marines weren't going to do that either. And that's that's a tough place. Uh, It's a tough place to operate.
2: A very tough place. I want to ask you kind of um, one last question, Uh, I guess maybe about culture. Um, Mm -hmm, Sure. You were a platoon commander. In the Army, you would have been a platoon leader. There are also some other differences. You've got, you know, bigger squads, and you only have three squads instead Mm -hmm. of four, Um, but three fire teams instead of two per squad. Exactly, exactly. What explains the differences, especially, you know, what – what makes you a commander of a platoon as opposed to a platoon leader?
0: Yeah, I think it's a real kind of philosophical difference between kind of the Army and the Marine Corps in this. So like the Marine Corps infantry perspective is that as that lieutenant, you are commanding that platoon that it you can operate fairly, in fact, what we were talking about before, a, a great degree of autonomy. Uh, the Marine Corps, you know, I, I think the Army concept of this is kind of mission command, right? So there's been a lot of mission command things going on. The Marine Corps talks about mission-type orders. And so at the company commander level, but also at the platoon commander level, you're kind of culturally uh, ingrained to give mission type orders. So talk about uh, end state and intent when you give orders, but allow subordinate leaders to carry that out however the best means they see fit and so as a platoon commander those are the type of orders that i gave to squad leaders so in in a lot of cases uh, you know i would as a platoon commander give squad leaders lots of responsibility and that's just sort of part of i think marine infantry culture is that they the marine corps i think really understands that the the marine corps infantry is around a marine rifleman and that is the DNA in the core. And that's where those, those split-second decisions to make are made to engage or not to engage. And there's a real kind of ethos of trying to decentralize um, command and, and decision-making. And so the Marine Corps philosophically says, it's just not a, co- a company commander, but these are also platoon commanders. And we want to invest that in our lieutenants. And, and the Marine Corps spends a, a lot of time training lieutenants. I, I had... Um, 10 months of training in Quantico before I took my platoon. I had six months of the the basic officer course, which every single Marine Corps officer goes through and you, you come out of that as a provisional rifle platoon commander. So if you're going to go down to Pensacola and learn to fly jets, you're going to, you know, uh, suck it up in the woods for six months in Quantico Mm -hmm. to understand kind of the ethos of a Marine rifleman and what it takes to be a Marine rifle platoon commander, no matter what your military occupational specialty is going to be. And then on the infantry side, so you do that for six months. And then you go through, uh, basically a 12 week infantry officer course in Quantico after that, which is, you know, another level in terms of, of, uh, how demanding and grueling it is, but also the type of training you get to professionalize as an infantry officer. So when you get to the other end of that, yeah, the opportunity to be a platoon commander is something that, um, every, every Marine infantry officer takes a great deal of, of pride in.
2: That's really interesting. Um. Well, Tim, thanks very much for, for making time. I, I think we're going to have to try to get more Marines on the show because this has been a great story and and yeah. I think a lot to unpack from it. So right. thank you.
0: Humble to be here and uh, really appreciate the work you guys are doing with the Spear series. It's great. Thank you.
1: Hey, before you go, just a quick reminder that if you're not already doing so, you can follow MWI on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. It's a great way to stay up to date on what we're doing so you don't miss any of the new articles, podcasts, and research we're publishing every day. Thanks again for listening.